Our reading today is from Colossians 1, 9 through 23. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you will, may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, ple fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile him to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lori. There is something powerful about reading the word of God. When we read it together, we do it because I believe that the scripture should be read out loud during our worship. There's something powerful that happens that's the Holy Spirit. Whenever it's windy, that's the Holy Spirit, okay? All right, very good. I'm going to have to get used to, you know, when we first went indoors this uh, summer, I had to get used to what it was like to go indoors, like being able to read inside of dark place. And out here, I'm going to get used to getting various kinds of distractions, which is part of what we love about being out of doors. So, as we always say, if you need a, a more comfortable place to sit, um, and, uh, um, you know, if the sun changes, the wind changes, you just need to, you know, feel free to get up and go. That's part of the beauty of being here uh, at Cowboy Church. Okay. Well, I want to take a little quiz and see how you do it, you know, how you do on this quiz. There is a movie where this was the famous saying, go ahead, make my day. The question is, who said it? Clint Eastwood in what movie? <laughs> Actually, in Sudden Impact. As Dirty Harry, in Sudden Impact. But that's pretty good. All right. That's considered the sixth most quotable line in all of the movies. Here's the fifth one. Here's looking at you, kid. Who said it? Humphrey Bogart in what movie? There you go. Number four. Toto. <laughs> this will be tough. I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Who said it? In Yes, there you go. Here's one. Number three, 
I'll, I'll try to say it a little bit like it. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Who, Marlon Brando, yes, at On the Water. That's a great movie, isn't it? On the Waterfront. All right, that's the third most memorable quote. Number two, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as Vito Corleone in Godfather, right? And then number, number one, and I won't say quite the whole line in reference to the fact that this is church. Frankly, my dear, who said it? Clark Gable in, yeah, as Red Butler in Gone with the Wind. All right. Very good. You know, there's something magical about the fact, and maybe a little bit concerning about the fact that I just gave you six lines, and every one of us basically immediately was brought back to that. You know, that's the power of story. That's the power of these words. And as soon as you, as soon as you hear, here's looking at you, kid, you're brought back to World War II in that dusty little bar as Humphrey Bogart says that. As soon as you hear, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, your mind goes back. And that, that story begins to now become almost fresh and new in your imagination, right? Do you see that? Stories are a very powerful way of communicating truth. We live our lives out of stories. Stories grip our imagination and influence our lives. I, I, this, is on the, this list I gave you was from the American Film Institute, and it's from a list that came out in 2005 with 100 most memorable quotes. And I really had to limit because there were so many that I thought were interesting. I could have done a lot more, but you have more to do than just quiz over quotes. Why do I do this? Because we need to understand the power of story. We need to understand how important story is, and we need to ask ourselves, what is the story which shapes my life? What is the story which I do not even necessarily think about but still influences my life? Is it the story of the American dream? You know, work hard, pull yourself by the, and then you'll be healthy, buy that house. Well, always, well, you know, that story hasn't quite been as true lately as we think. What is the story? Is it the story of what my parents taught me? Is it the story of the, 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 the um, uh, of the, uh, uh, you know, the damage that's been done in my life. What is the story that shapes my life? I want to encourage you to embrace the greatest story of all. It's a story found in this book, the story of the Bible. And what concerns me is that what, while I could pick six of the most memorable statements in all of Scripture, I don't want to embarrass you, but I'm quite sure did I say what I meant to say? The most memorable statements in movies, and you can find that if I were to pick six of the most memorable statements in Scripture, I wonder if it would bring and evoke the same kind of image for you. Is our lives gripped by the story of Scripture? Do we know who said, let my people go, and why he said it, and why it matters, and how it fits in the big story? Do we know who said, my beloved is mine and he is mine? My, and, and, and who said it and why it's important? Do we know who said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? Do we know who said in the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. Do we know who said, I that speak unto you am he, and why he said it, and what it meant? Do we know who said, it is finished? Do we know who said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit? Do we have a life shaped by the story of Scripture? The reality is, even for many Christians, the Bible is something of a closed book. We know some of the things about it, but we don't really know the story, what it's about. For you see, the Bible is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's an epic story, what Christians believe to be the true story of how the world came into being, what went wrong in the world, and what God did to fix that which was wrong, and how the story of the world ends up. This story is, if Christianity is right, the true story. Do we know and live that story? Unfortunately, I'm sure it's true, Christians often are sadly ignorant about just this book. They rarely read it. They rarely know much about it. They find it frustrating to them. Is it how are we going to communicate the greatest story out there if we haven't learned and let it fill our lives in here. And I'm sad to say that often many churches and pastors unknowingly contribute to the ignorance of their people because we tend to preach sermons and host Bible studies which focus merely on tips and techniques, three steps to make your life better, how to get God on your side, how to make money, how to overcome stress. We turn the book into a manual for self-improvement. Is that really what the book's about? No, it's not. And we go to Bible studies, and we always ask ourselves, well, what does this mean to you? You see, so consequently, we are often at the shape of the larger stories of our American dream that shape us more than the spiritual story which is found in the Bible. We need to learn to be people of the book. And so today, I'm going to try to accomplish a behemoth task. I'm going to tell you the story of the Bible in four acts. I want you to think of the Bible as a four-act play. Now, I'm going to have to necessarily very brief, cover a lot of ground, very fast, and this may be a failed experiment. <laughs> I will do the best that I can. And uh, the Spirit is not helping me this morning um, with my notes. All right. All right. So, I want you to think of this story as an epic drama, a grand play, a feature-length movie. You see? That... Because if Christianity is right, the reason we embrace these stories is because they are mirrors of the larger, big story of what God is doing in the world. What is the story of the Bible from beginning to end in a four-act play? Now, get your writing notes on and get on ready because I want you to remember this. Number one, act one begins with the beauty of creation. The beauty of creation. It's found in Genesis 1 and 2. It tells us that this world is not an accident. It's not the result of the, um, of the battle of the gods, which is what Enuma Elish and some of these other epic poems uh, uh, taught back during the time the Bible was written, that there were the stories of the gods and their battle, their blood fell on the earth, and the humans grew up, and the basic purpose of the humans was simply to do the work the gods didn't want to do. That was what people believed way back then. No, we see that when the author of the first two chapters of Genesis wrote down his epic words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. The first day. What a beautiful poem. Telling us that this world is not an accident, but it was designed intentionally by a creator who is not within the world, but who is separate from the world. That's why when you hear people talk about God being in the tree, God, be, they're not talking about a biblical approach to Christianity, to the Scriptures. Scriptures say that God is separate from the universe, that the world came from Him, and it, he, his, his blessing is upon It's the loving act of creation. The, and so there are three things to see. And I'm going to have to be very brief. I've tried to give you Scripture texts in here, which you're, I encourage you to look up. But this is really Genesis 1 and 2. And so when God created the world, we see that, number one, there was harmony with creation. There is harmony with creation. In other words, creation worked together in beautiful harmony. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The text that I had Laurie read for you does not, of course, tell the big story of the Bible, but it hints at it. It assumes it in this great poem of the early church in, Je in Colossians 1, 15 and following, where it says in the 15th verse, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You see, there is a beauty within creation. Creation is not, is not by accident, but by design. Creation was made for us, and we were made for creation. We, there is a mutuality of serving one another. The creation is here to give to us life, and we are here to care for the creation. And God said about creation that it was very good. Don't believe many Christians act as if creation is worthless. No, God made it. He loves it. It's beautiful. It should be cared for. This is my Father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me, all nature springs and round me sings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. You see? That's why we love creation. We're not supposed to worship it. We are supposed to love it, okay? Nature is not our mother. It is our sister. Don't harm her. Love her. Don't worship her. Love her. All right. So there was harmony in creation. You can see it's going to be a quick talk through this. <laughs> and there is harmony with each other. There is harmony with each other. The Lord God said in chapter 2 and verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God creates woman out of man. And it says, and they were naked and unashamed. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be woman, for she was taken out of man. 
You see, there was beautiful openness, intimacy, harmony, loveliness between them. This is the way it's meant to be. This is God's design. There is harmony with one another. And thirdly, there was harmony with God. There was harmony with God. It says in the third chapter, referring to what had been going on before things went wrong in the world, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Wow, God walking among his people. God having fellowship, openness, intimacy, no secrets, no hiding, no shame, no guilt, no fear, just beauty. This is the way God created the world. This is the ultimate vision for what God had in mind when he created this world. But clearly, as beautiful as this vision is, it does not any longer correspond to reality. So we move now into Act 2. You ever watch a player? So you move into the acts. Each act is different from the one preceding it, but it's influenced by it, right? So in Act 2, we have this memory of the beauty of creation, but there's a new element that gets added into it. And what does that act number two tell us? It's the brokenness of creation. The brokenness of creation. Creation was beautiful, but it has been broken Colossians 1.21 hints at it where it says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is not the way God designed for creation to be, but this is what happened because of what happened in the first few uh, chapters of the Bible. So Genesis 1 and 2 is act number 1. Genesis 3 is act number 2. It actually goes up through chapter 11 when we see the brokenness of creation. When into the garden comes a serpent representing evil, and the serpent causes the humans to question the goodness of God, to ask themselves whether or not they can really count on this God who made them and provided all this for them, whether or not this God is really looking out for their best interests or not. It's a crazy thought. Why would they, why would they doubt it? And yet it's no crazier than yours and my thoughts. When we doubt God's goodness because it doesn't meet our expectations, he fails to be the God we decided he ought to be, we still do it, don't we? In any case, what happened when the woman listened to the question of the serpent when he said to her, has God really, this is how it says in the Scripture, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see the sinister way the question is asked, putting a question in the mind of an already trusting person. Did God actually say, is God put needless rules on your life, saying you can't eat any tree? Oh, no. She says, we can eat any tree we want to, except for that one tree. We can't eat it, and we can't touch it. Of course, God didn't say they couldn't touch it, but she said it. And so she, he says to her, and he, she says, but God said, she, the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Seeing his opening, the serpent now says to him in her in verse 4, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and 
evil. So the woman, as you know, eats the tree, and God, the serpent gets her to question the goodness of God and, in fact, decide that God is not looking out for her own interests. And so what we see here is that three things happen. Number one, our relationship with God is broken. We have a distrust of God. There is a dissonance between us and God. We doubt God's goodness. This is what happens. She doubted God's goodness. She disobeyed God's command. She hid. I say she just because she was. they both did it together. Let's put, make it per, plural. They doubted God's goodness. They disobeyed God's command. They hid from God, and they began to cover up. As soon as they, well, I don't know what they covered up, but I'm just assuming. As soon as they uh, as soon as they stepped out of God's loving care, they became vulnerable, shameful, guilt-ridden, hiding out. In their relationship with God, when God walked in the garden, as they began to hide from God, isn't that how things are for us? We want God, but only on our terms, according to our agenda for our needs. Their relationship with God was broken, and now humanity continues to have a distrust of God. Secondly, their relationship with one another was broken. Their relationship with one another was broken because what happens when God calls them out and they're hiding? Why are you hiding? Did you eat? He says to Adam, you know how this happens, right? It's, it's, it's beautiful. He says to Adam, let's pretend you're Adam. Adam, did you eat the, the fruit I told you not to eat? Does Adam, does Adam man up and say, yes, Lord, I ate it? What does he do? No, he says, the woman that you gave me, that you gave me, Lord, she gave it to me and I ate it. Yeah? It's your fault, God, right? Isn't that implicit? See the wisdom in these ancient words? Isn't this exactly how we are? Instead of accepting responsibility for our own deeds, we blame someone else. And we blame God because that person's in our life. So then he says to the woman, did you eat of the tree or the, or the fruit? Does she, hold, you know, does she accept responsibility for her actions? Of course not. She says, the serpent, he deceived me, and I ate, you see. And so there, you can imagine what kind of conversation Adam and Eve had as they walked out of that garden. The first family fight began to happen. What are you doing blaming it on me? You look at this, you're a fall. Why did you eat that? You know, you, I mean, wouldn't that be what would happen for you? Yeah. So the Scriptures give to us this story of creation which was made beautiful but has become marred and broken. We still have the memory of the beauty. We still have the memory of a good God and a good story and a good creation, uh, a good future. It's still there, but it's been covered over by the brokenness so that our relationship with God is broken. We feel our shame, and our relationship with one another is broken. We feel our shame, and we cover up. And then it gets worse. Then later, what happens in chapter 4? But Cain and Abel have a disagreement before God, and what does Cain do but kill his own brother? Yeah. And then thirdly, our creation with, excuse me, our relationship with creation is broken. All right? We have a godless culture. Oh, I wish I had time to really talk about this because we see that the development of human civilization, which developed following sin's entrance into the world, now is a way of affirming our own independence from God. 
So whereas God had intended for men and for women to build a beautiful culture to cultivate the garden, the word culture has the same root word, to cultivate the garden and to, and to, and to build, I believe, cities and, and do all these great things with this raw material that God has given. Instead, what we have in chapters 3 through 11 is Cain going out and going east of Eden, and Cain went and built a city. So the first reference to a city is in the reference of God, Cain wandering away from God. And then we see the development. Um, this is a bit of a trick, okay? So Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord, and, uh, and then it says, and he goes out and he, he, he builds a city, and then it says, and Lamech took two wives, so now we have men dominating women by pulling into themselves more relationships, two wives, it happens after that, and Cain went and settled, Cain knew his, she built uh, verse 17, Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son Enoch, and etc. Verse 19, Lamech took two wives. Verse 20, Abel bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents. There we have agriculture. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. We have the development of the arts, the lyre and the pipe. Zillah bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze. And so we had the development of the industrial age, the building. You see how it is? Now, there was a time in my life that I thought, truthfully, I thought, that all development of civilization was bad. No, it's only bad because it was done in rebellion against God. God intended for these humans to develop a great civilization, but not a civilization designed to take advantage of and to hurt and to abuse and to distort and to not that kind of a civilization, not in fact the kind of a civilization which actually developed, but instead a civilization built under his lordship. But we see here the brokenness of creation, and then we see that there's this early poem in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-seven. This is the height of human arrogance. God had said about Cain that if anybody kills you, I will protect you. God protected the one who disobeyed him. There's a lesson in that. If anyone kills you, I will avenge him sevenfold. Lamech then later, now to his two wives, say, I killed a man for injuring me. Cain had committed murder, right? It was a minor offense. If God is going to be avenged sevenfolds, Take this, God. I'll be avenged 77-fold. You see the brokenness, the rebellion? That's what happened to creation. So our relationship, what I mean to say under this second point, the third item under this second point is that our relationship with creation is broken. We have this culture which tries to develop itself independent of God. It was in the Tower of Babel. That's why God broke it up. This is all in those 11 chapters. It was found when God had to restart with Noah and his crew. There were none righteous among them. There is something wrong with the world. Well, we may not buy into this, but we all know that there's something not quite right with the world, like dislocated shoulder. It's out of joint. Something's wrong. 
you know, we've got to fix this. Religion has answers. Philosophy has answers. Science has answers. And uh, uh, all of these answers, on the other hand, however, assume that there is something that we can do to fix our problem. But the lessons of Scripture tell a very different story because the third act tells us about the rescue of creation, how God brings rescue to this broken creation. Now, I only have a moment to simply summarize what happens from here. Who knows? Perhaps we'll pick it up next week more specifically. But we see that in the 12th chapter of Genesis, God comes and He calls a man. His name was Abraham. And out of, man, out of Abraham, He creates a people. So we have part one of the rescue of creation when we have Israel and the old covenant, when God creates a new covenant with people to try to bring blessing to Abraham and to his followers, and then through them to bless the whole world. God initiated this. This is a rescue that God brought. And when the people were captive in in Italy, not in Italy, in Egypt, maybe Italy as well, captive in Egypt, God came to them through Moses and rescued them and brought them out and brought them to a mountain and says, let's start things new. Let me rescue you. I brought you to myself. This is my new covenant. And it was designed to restore harmony with God or with one another and with creation. That's what the Ten Commandments and the laws are all about. Don't abuse that land. Let part of it sit fallow every seven, year, every seven years or so. It's, it's all about taking care of this creation, which we will abuse if we're given the opportunity to. Don't take your husband's wife. Uh, don't, don't take your, your, your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's good. This is about getting along with one another. Don't lie. Don't steal. The first few commands, have no other gods before for me. You see, relationship with God. That was part one, but it was only marginally successful because Israel was disobedient as well. And so we moved to part two of the rescue plan of God, which was Jesus and the new covenant. Yes, it was Abraham and the first covenant. In the first case, Israel and the old covenant, and then Jesus and the new covenant. This is what starts in the Gospel of Matthew as we see God coming to us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus fulfills the law and through his death suffers its consequences to establish a new covenant between us and God with one another and with creation. We just spent close to a year talking about that through the Gospel of John, how Jesus came as God embodied to bring us back to Him. Yes. Let's move then quickly and finally to the fourth act. This is the act where we see the renewal of creation, the renewal of creation, so that when Jesus was raised from the dead, new creation began to emerge. When God's plan for the future life began to occur even right now, Jesus' resurrection inaugurates new creation. That's part one. Jesus' resurrection inaugurates new creation bringing thus about harmony with God, harmony with one another, and harmony with creation. That's the part of the story we're living in right now. That's the act we're in. We're in the middle of that fourth act. We're not in the part two yet, but we're in the middle of that. When it's our task to put into place the achievements of Jesus' resurrection, to become, as we say in our church's purpose statement, to become living witnesses of God's new creation in Christ Jesus by becoming a community of faith, 
love and hope. You see, Jesus' resurrection brought newness into the creation and brought into us into harmony with God and harmony with one another and back into harmony with creation. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. But you see what happens. We still have the effects of the old creation, don't we? We still are tempted to live by Act 2 or even by Act 1. We ending, we're, tend, we're, still influenced by, uh, we're still influenced by the negative things that have happened, and so we find ourselves living by the old way, adopting the cultural systems. But what our plan is, what our hope is, is to become witnesses of hope in Christ. Jesus' resurrection inaugurates new creation. And secondly, Jesus' return consummates new creation. When in Revelation 21 and 22, we see heaven coming down as a, as a bride prepared for her husband. That's a powerful image to me because just last week I stood next to my son, a bridegroom, and saw my new daughter-in-law walking forward as a bride prepared for her husband, beautifully adorned. The Bible says that as beautiful as that picture is, it's merely a picture of the future state when Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom, will claim us his ultimate bride. And we will then rule this newly made, remade earth as what should have been in the first place when we'll create culture and live and laugh and love. And as the Bible says, there will be no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more sin, but blessing together, not living in harps, <laughs> in clouds, but populating with new bodies on a new earth with Jesus, our bridegroom, living and laughing and loving together. So, the story of the world is a four-part story. Part one, or act one, I should say, beauty, beautiful creation. Part two, Broken, broken creation. Still beautiful, but broken. Part three, rescue. First of all, rescue through the people of Israel. That's the rest of the Old Testament. Secondly, rescue culminated through the person of Jesus, the faithful Israelite who gave his life for us as a sacrifice for our sin, fulfilling the law, offering us his life. And then finally, then renewal. And we're in that day, seeking to provide the good news to people who are lost and hopeless in this world that God is alive and well, that Jesus loves them, that there is hope on the other side of the grave, that we want to live like Jesus meant us to live, become witnesses to the future even as we live in the present. As in heaven, there will be love, there should be love here. As in heaven, there will be serving, there should be serving here. As in heaven, there will be welcoming of everyone, there should be welcoming here. As in heaven, we will use the, the materials of this world to bless and beautify the world, so too should we as we build culture here to live a new way in the midst of this world. That's the story of the world. Let's have prayer as we close. Lord Jesus, Thank you so much for giving us a story which is beautiful and true. It's the great story. We thank you for it. And we know it's a costly story because it involved the death of God himself. 
Father, help us to embrace that, to stop hiding out like Adam and Eve did, to stop blaming others, to stop making excuses, and rather to receive your grace, the grace offered to us when Jesus said, it is finished. Father, forgive them. Help us to receive that forgiveness. Help us to admit that we need rescue, that we are sick and we cannot save ourselves. Help us to admit that. Help us to believe that there is a God who came to us and help us to commit our lives to Him. And then help us to live that story and tell that story until the consummation of the ultimate marriage between heaven and earth, the bridegroom and the bride. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <laughs>